Amen. Amen. All right. Psalm 45 this evening is where we pick up. We're told Psalm 45 is another psalm given to the chief musician. So it was indeed, no doubt, a musical psalm, we can tell. So it wasn't just poetry, Hebrew poetry. But as we've said before, the book of Psalms is sort of like the Hebrew hymn book. Uh, Many of these psalms that we read are very poetic in nature, but most of them, if not the majority of them, it seems, are also set to music. Now, we don't always know what the melody was. We don't always know exactly what the tune was, but particularly here in the prescript of the beginning of this psalm, we're told it was to the chief musician, uh, to the lilies. It says a uh, contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. So this was particularly a love song. Uh, We know that. And particularly, we're going to see that it was a love song. It sort of seemed like a marriage theme. It was a song that was written regarding the king and his bride as they would celebrate uh, a marriage festival together. So it seems it was put together in that sense. But we'll see as we look at this that certainly it was probably written, whether it was for Solomon uh, or one of the other kings, uh, maybe even David, we're not certain. But uh, we'll see as we look at it, it becomes very picturesque of Jesus and of you and I, the bride of Christ, as his church. And again, the Bible uses that analogy quite frequently. In the Old Testament, God refers to the nation of Israel, uh, to the Jewish people as his wife, and God picturing himself as a husband in that analogy. And when we get to the New Testament, we find the same picture once again used, that Jesus is pictured like a groom or like the spiritual husband, and you and I as the church are the bride of Christ. We're the, the wife of the Lord. And so... As we look at this, we certainly see pictures of uh, that very thing um, kind of portrayed here for us. The psalm begins by the the writer saying, my heart is overflowing. And that term there literally means to, to bubble over or to boil over. The idea is there's something so important within the heart of the psalmist. He couldn't contain it, and this is kind of the idea here. It's like when you feel like the Lord's given to you a song or somebody who's a songwriter. There's just this thing that's bubbling up within you that you just feel the need that you you have to share and, and, and put down. And so he says, my heart is overflowing with a good theme. And so I recite, he says, my composition concerning the king and my tongue. He pictures his tongue, his words, like the pen of a ready writer so just like you would use a pen to write down and record words uh, to be able to convey a message he says i feel like this is what i'm called to do with my tongue to use my tongue and my words like a pen like an instrument to be able to write out uh, this beautiful theme and to write out this message and particularly this composition he says concerning the king Now, we're going to see, as I said, as we look at this, I think this is basically the Holy Spirit putting this overflowing good theme on the heart of the psalmist, not just to refer to the king in the natural sense, but to refer to the king that we know most of all, the king of kings, our Lord Jesus. And uh, notice the subject of the uh, writer is concerning the king. So that's the subject of this contemplation or composition that he's putting down. And I think what a beautiful thing, you know, if at time to time the Lord gives us something to say or something to sing or something to share or maybe even something to write down, no better thing that we could do than have our, our, the Holy Spirit directing us to record or write things that the subject would be about Jesus. And I think this is a very picturesque description of him. He says, verse 2, again, regarding 
this king that he's writing about, he says of the king, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. So he begins by describing the king, saying that the king is fairer. And the idea of fairer is uh, more beautiful, more attractive than the sons of men. So he begins by describing the incredible attractiveness of the king. Now, when we think about that in regards to Jesus, the Bible tells us in the book Isaiah that there was nothing about the physical appearance of Jesus that was particularly overly attractive. In other words, the Bible says to us that the humanity of Christ was very normal. It was very common. There was nothing about Jesus uh, where he walked around and he had this glow or this sheen or he kind of looked like Flavio of the you know Old Testament days. I mean, the Bible says that Jesus looked like a very common person. In fact, I would bring to note, just as a sidelight to that, you'll notice when you read the scriptures, there is really, other than knowing that he was a Jewish man, other than knowing that he had a beard, which was very common for Jewish men, because the Bible also says they pulled out his beard, there is no physical description of the humanity of Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell us what color his eyes were, and we know that he was Jewish, we know that he had a beard, and that's it. Uh, there is no physical. And, I, and I, I can't help but to wonder, think about it, of all the knowledge of God and all the Holy Spirit could have disclosed to us, revealed to us. I can't help to wonder if maybe perhaps the reason God did that is that we would learn to love and to live by Jesus and, and to know Jesus by faith. And perhaps that would keep us from getting a little bit too artistic when it comes to Jesus sometimes. You know, because if we had all these details, I mean, we have, we have great detail. Think about it. Revelation gives us great detail about his resurrected body and what he looked like. Revelation 1, where they see the resurrected Christ and his eyes like a flame of fire and his, you know, hair like, you know, white wool and his feet like bronze and brass. And again, all these pictures of Christ and his glory and his strength. But in his humanity, we have very little description of him. And we can't help but to wonder if maybe that's because God knows that we're so prone to, you know, build statues and pictures. And then we worship these things and create them as idols. The Bible doesn't tell us very much, just that he was a very common, everyday looking man in the Jewish culture. So what does the psalmist then mean here when he says of this king, and perhaps this king was attractive, you are fairer than the sons of men, more beautiful, more attractive than the sons of men. Well, the way that would be true of Jesus is Jesus was incredibly attractive in his character, his inward beauty. The beauty of our king, the king of kings, wasn't that he had this you know, beautiful you know, face and gorgeous hair and powerful physique and you know, he was taller than all the other men in his kingdom. The thing that's attractive about our king is his nature. It's the character of Christ. It's who he was in his person. You know, Jesus, the only autobiographical statement he makes of himself is in Matthew chapter 11. Remember when he says, come to me and he says, and learn of me. And he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And again, what Jesus draws attention to is the fact that he was meek, that he was gentle in nature, that he was humble. And this is what he draws attention to, the beauty of his inward character. And I think it's a great reminder for us because ultimately that is truly, is it not? That is what becomes the most attractive thing about any person 
is character. I mean, outward beauty has its purpose, it, you know, but the Bible even tells us, and it says Psalm 31 regarding, or, you know, Proverbs 31, you know, regarding, you know, even the beauty of, of the most attractive women, that charm is deceitful, beauty is fleeting. That is, it passes away, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised because that inward beauty lasts forever. That's why Peter addresses the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter there says, don't let your adornment be merely outward. He says, but let it be the hidden character of the heart, which is you know, far more precious in the sight of God. In other words, there's something way more attractive about godliness and a gentle, quiet, sweet spirit of a woman. There's something way more beautiful about the inward nature and disposition of a lady or of a man and that, rather than just all outward features because the outward features fall apart, right? We're all living testimony of that, right? <laughs> all of us in this room tonight. Everything else deteriorates over time. But you can continue to increase in, in, in beauty inwardly. And so the thing that was so beautiful about Jesus was his inward nature, everything about the character of Christ. And that's evidence because he says, verse 2, look, he illustrates it. He says, grace is poured upon your lips. That is the way in which Christ spoke. This king was very gracious. And of course, no one is that more true of, verse 2, than of Jesus, the gracious words that would proceed out of Jesus' mouth. Now, where do our words come from? Well, Jesus himself said, out of the overflow of what? The heart, the mouth speaks. So because Jesus was so gracious in heart and he had such an attractive character and disposition and his heart was so good as a man as he lived among us as the son of God and the son of man, that's why, because of his inward beauty, his words were so beautiful and gracious and attractive and the way that he spoke was just very powerful uh, and at the same time authoritative but yet at the same time just very very gracious in fact luke chapter 4 as they were describing jesus it tells us in luke chapter 4 that they said this uh, of jesus it says luke four twenty two. so all bore witness to him and marveled listen marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth and they said, is this not Joseph's son? That is, is, isn't this just Joey's boy? I mean, is this Joseph's son? He just ran around Nazareth. Isn't it? And see, the, the illustration there is they were so familiar with Jesus of Nazareth. He was Joseph's son, Joseph the carpenter. No doubt he worked with his dad and showed up at the job site. And again, remember, the majority of Jesus's earthly life, the first 30 years, he wasn't doing miracles. He didn't have a public teaching ministry, but yet the father, when he looked upon Jesus, said of Jesus before he ever did one miracle, taught one sermon, did anything powerful in his public ministry, Jesus heard from the father, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, past tense, meaning already well pleased. So the father was fully pleased with Jesus. Why? Because for 30 years, he walked in fellowship with God, the father. Every time he did some work on the construction site, he didn't do half-hearted work and things were straight and jams were level and, and he gave honest bills and, and he gave an honest day's work for an honest day's you know, pay. And, 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 and everything he did was with integrity and the right heart and to glorify God. It wasn't just to please even his earthly father, Joseph. It was to please his heavenly father and everything about what Jesus did, just the way he lived his life was attractive and beautiful. And it was pleasing to the father in such a way where the people, when they heard Jesus speak, they were astonished and they said, 
where, where did this come from, these gracious words? Because when Jesus would speak, in one sense, they were shocked, remember, because of how much authority he spoke with. And they would say, this man has no rabbinical training. He's, he hasn't been to the prestigious schools of the Jewish rabbis. How does he speak like that? How does he speak with such authority? And they just sense the power of, of the divine, you know, heaven coming from the Lord through his life when he spoke. And this is just, where's this coming from? He wasn't trained. How is this possible? But at the same time, his words had incredible authority and conviction and power. The Bible also says that there were gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. There was something very powerful and authoritative, but yet at the same time, very gracious. Uh, and, and there was just love and compassion mingled in this beautiful balance because Jesus, the Bible tells us, is God and God is love and God is also light. So God beautifully blends together light and truth. That's why Paul tells us in Colossians regarding our own words, he says, let our words be full of grace and seasoned with salt at the exact same time. So again, that, that's the aim. We want to have our words seasoned with salt. Truth, salt's appetizing, salt stings if it gets in the wound, it's a cleansing agent, but at the same time, full of grace. And Jesus's words were full of grace. It says, grace was poured out upon his lips, and because of that, God had blessed him as he spoke, and the people would be so receptive to what he said. Now, as we come to verse 3, you notice there's a shift. He says, verse 3, and gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one. With your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things, and your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, and the peoples fall under you. So here's the psalmist goes on to recite more of this composition concerning his kings, who he, who he was so impressed by. Here he kind of shifts gears and he starts to talk about his king in the sense of being this victorious warrior. This king who was like a military general and who would come back from battles with his sword girded upon his thigh like a mighty warrior and, and would come back riding in majesty because he upheld the truth and his causes were about righteousness and he operated in humility. But at the same time, he had great power as his arrows and, and warfare would be very effective among the king's enemies. Now, as you look at verses three to five, that picture is very clearly there, the second coming of Jesus. And in verse 2 is a very clear description of Jesus in his first coming in his humanity, being humble and beautiful in character and gracious words being upon his lips and just having the blessing of God upon his life because of how he lived as a man. Verses 3 to 5 clearly depict Jesus in his second coming as he comes back, not as a humble servant, but as a glorified, victorious warrior king. And again, if you read Revelation chapter 19, as Jesus comes back, he comes back with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And he's riding back in victory and all of the glory of heaven is with him. And verses three to five picture that in many ways when we look at what's described there and even how he rides prosperously. And notice the cause of this king and his warfare and his battles were because he was interested in the truth, verse four, in humility and in righteousness, and how he came back doing awesome things. You know, it, it is interesting, verse 4 does make that allusion there to even how he says, your right hand shall teach you awesome things, the idea of, of this king uh, being able to, to learn things. 
And, and though I mentioned here that in some ways this describes the, the second coming of Christ, it is interesting that in the book of Hebrews, though it's kind of almost hard for, I know me, to wrap my head around, the book of Hebrews actually describes that Jesus was learning certain things as he was learning obedience through the things that he suffered. Uh, and so, you know, just an interesting illusion there because you wonder, well, how could that possibly, you know, resonate in some way of Christ? But the Bible does convey that there were things that as Jesus, even as a man, was living on his life, he was, you know, learning through that whole process. Now, verse 6 shifts back to the psalmist saying here, your throne, O God. Now, you can tell here he definitely seems to be being led of the spirit as he records these things. He says, your throne, and then he says, your throne, notice, O God, is forever and ever. Speaking of the eternal reign of this king and his throne, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, What's interesting, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 actually quotes this very verse here from Psalm 45 as he speaks about the deity of Jesus. When he's trying to convey the fact that Jesus is greater than the angels, uh, how he's so much better than the angels, it tells us Hebrews 1 verse 8 that to the Son of God, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is your kingdom, and then he quotes as well the next portion of Psalm 45. So here, very interesting, you can tell that the, the writer of Hebrews draws from this psalm, seeing how it depicts prophetically, describing how Jesus, uh, that he actually was God, that he was God in the flesh, and that his throne was an everlasting throne that would last forever and ever, and that his rule would be a rule of righteousness and that's how his kingdom would be guided. He further describes verse 7 saying, Of this king you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And all your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and kasha and out of ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters, he says, are among your honorable women, and at your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. So as he continues to describe this king, in verse 7, he tells us a little bit about what matters to this king and ultimately to our king, Jesus. He says, this king loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Now, that's how you can tell you have a good king, because He's not dispassionate about righteousness. He loves what is right. He loves what is righteous, what is proper, what's appropriate. He loves when righteousness is what is done. He loves when people do right things, when people care about what is right in the sight of God, being in right relationship with God. So this king loves righteousness, and Jesus loves righteousness. But notice, the thing we often don't think about is notice just as much passion, the end of verse 7, he says, and you hate wickedness. Now, hate's a strong word, right? We, we oftentimes think about God being loving, Jesus being so loving, and it you know, almost sounds like that the word hate shouldn't be in our vocabulary. But yet the Bible tells us that there are certain things that God actually hates, the Bible tells us that God, in the book of Proverbs, says that God hates those who sow discord among the brethren. God hates trouble starters. God doesn't like people who cause divisions in relationships and separation in relationships. The Bible says here just generically that he hates 
wickedness. Not that he just dislikes it, not that he's just sad about it, but that he actually hates wickedness. And this is important because the Bible also tells you and I that we should love what God loves and we should hate what God hates. And so we should have mutual and similar feelings to the Lord. You know, good thing to ask ourselves. A lot of times, you know, we, we don't struggle, I think, so much many times with loving righteousness. But do we really hate wickedness? Do we really hate it or we kind of just, you know, we kind of accept it and we're apathetic about it? There should be a sense of passion in our heart that when we see wicked things, it should disgust us. That there should be a sense of passion that we actually have a hatred for that we deeply despise wicked things, you know, wrong and evil things that we see going on because that's, in a sense, what keeps our character just. And he says, therefore, in, because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness, he says, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So uh, because of loving righteousness and hating wickedness, it gave a very, look, notice, a very sweet disposition to this king. And of course, if we think of this king as Jesus, what a beautiful description of Jesus, that he was anointed by God with the oil of gladness more than your companions. What a beautiful way to picture Jesus. He loved righteousness. He hated wickedness. But notice it says he was someone who was glad. The disposition of Jesus, he had gladness in his disposition. So just a, a very beautiful picture of Jesus to envision him as someone who just was a, a, a sweet, joyful person in nature. You know, he, he was glad. He wasn't gloomy in his nature. You know, a lot of times people have this perspective of holiness, you know, being so you know, pious, never laughing or whatever. I mean, you know, I wonder some of the things that Jesus and the 12 disciples talked about, the things they laughed about. I mean, you can't put 12 men together for three years traveling around the country and think that at times they weren't being boys and having a good time and, just, you know, just being glad and enjoying life and chuckling and laughing together and enjoying themselves and what a beautiful picture to picture Jesus just being someone who was glad, just, just enjoying life and easygoing in some ways. In fact, verse 8, it describes how the king's garments were scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. And again, the idea, these were fragrances that the king would put on and, and understand in that culture, the reason they would typically perfume themselves because they didn't deodorize themselves and they didn't wash themselves. So typically, they put on all those fragrances. They would do it to a dead body so the stench of a decaying corpse was not overwhelming when the loved ones came to mourn and to grieve. That's why they would do it. But typically, if you had the uh, you know, wealth and you were able to keep yourself well-perfumed, guess what it did? It made you a more pleasant person to be around <laughs> in a hot Mideastern culture where you didn't bathe as regularly as we bathe and wash as much as we wash and wear you know, nice deodorants or whatever. So this just made you a little bit more pleasant to be around. And as I read that, I think to myself, what a beautiful description of Jesus as well. The idea there in verse eight, the Holy Spirit is conveying that Jesus wasn't only glad as a person, but he was a pleasant man to be around. He was pleasant to be around. He was just someone that it was enjoyable being around him. He loved righteousness. He hated wickedness. There was a sense of gladness and easygoing personality. And, and he just was someone who it just was pleasing to be around him. 
you know, again, as we think about how we're called to grow in the nature of Christ, these should be things that become more and more a part of us. As a Christian, are you someone who is pleasant to be around? Do people enjoy being around you? If you're Christ-like, to a degree, that should be something that more and more is developing in our character. The people say, I really enjoy being around her. I really enjoy being around him. Yeah, they're a Christian, but I enjoy being around him more than anybody else on the job site. That there's just something about the fragrance of our life. The Bible speaks of that fragrance spiritually that we can give off and hear Jesus being pictured in this way. In verse 9, he then begins to now shift and start to talk about how there was a queen beside the king at his right hand. The queen stands in the gold of Ophir. So again, Jesus has his queen, his wife, his bride, as you and I are, even as this king did. And again, this was a marriage song. Uh, so it's describing the, the queen of this particular king. He says to this queen, notice the language now is addressed to her, not to the king. He now starts to speak to the wife of the king. And listen to the statements to the wife of the king. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So what's his first word of advice since this queen is now married to the king? The first word of advice to the wife is put away your former life. He says, forget your former life. Forget your own people and your father's house. Again, that's a biblical description of exactly really what marriage is. The Bible tells us, Genesis 2, when God instituted marriage, that a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and that's a part of the marriage process. It's the part of leaving your past life to a degree. It doesn't mean necessarily that it you know, has to be in every way cutting people off, but the idea is that there comes a change in your circumstances, your way of life, your first allegiance, that you leave behind your former way of life and you establish a new family unit and a new way of life. And to a degree, that is what this queen was being told to do. Look, forget your own people and your father's house. The idea is your first commitment now is to your husband, to your king. He's your first allegiance. He's the one who's to be the most important person in your life now. And as we look at that from a spiritual perspective, that's great advice for us as the wife, if you would, the, the wife of Jesus, our king. That, that to some degree, if we're going to faithfully enjoy a healthy spiritual marriage with Jesus, we have to be willing to forget our past life, to leave behind what our past once was. Maybe there were things we were attached to. Maybe there are things we were a part of. But we have to be willing to put everything in our past behind us if we're going to go forward in a faithful way in a love relationship with Jesus, we have to be willing to set aside what's behind and reach forward to that new relationship with him. We're called to do that spiritually. The Bible even tells us that Jesus said that, you know, if anyone loves mother or father or brother or sister more than me, Jesus said they're not worthy to be my disciple. So even Jesus calls us to this very thing of foremost allegiance to him above all else. He then says, verse 11, so the king will greatly desire your beauty. That is, the, the king wants to see the beauty of his own bride. And because he is your Lord, worship him. So again, the exhortation to the wife uh, that, that the husband would find enjoyment looking upon her beauty. And that would bring pleasure to him and that she should be you know, respectful and submitted to him as her king, as well as to her husband, because he is your Lord, worship him. And of course, we are called to do our, this very same thing with our Lord Jesus, to worship him. 
as a part of being joined to him spiritually in marriage. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. And the rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter, he says, is all glorious with her, within her palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes. Notice now describing the dress of the, of the wife. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, she shall be brought to you with gladness and rejoicing. They shall be brought and they shall enter the king's palace, coming into the palace of the king. And I think they're just describing this, again, wedding procession, the the marital experience. But for you and I spiritually, uh, we in a much greater way, the Bible have received much more glorious robes. She received robes, it says, of many colors that had gold and, and beauty in them. You and I have received the robes of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ that were dressed in those robes that we might be a pure and spotless bride as we're presented to him and enter into our heavenly palace as we go into the presence of the Lord. Verse 16, we're then told, instead of your father shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. So the idea there, speaking of your sons and princes, it seems again, describing the byproduct, what would come of the king and the queen living in a marriage relationship. The natural byproduct is that they would produce children. There would be offspring from the relationship of the king and his wife in the same way that really the byproduct spiritually of our marriage to Jesus should be spiritual offspring. That is, we are living in relationship with Jesus as the bride of Christ. The byproduct of that should be spiritual sons and daughters. We should see people uh, becoming the offspring of God and spiritual children being birthed as a result of that relationship. He concludes verse 17 saying, and I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever." And ever, and certainly that will happen as people praise our King in heaven forever and ever. Psalm 46, a more familiar psalm. Many of us perhaps have read this psalm at times before. We know some of the phrases in here, I'm sure, a lot more familiar to us than some of the other ones. Psalm 46 is definitely a, you might say, a crisis psalm. A psalm to go to, to find encouragement in times when life becomes chaotic or when we find ourselves in the midst of a very difficult storm or a crisis-type situation, when everything is falling apart, when it seems everything is unraveling and fears are gripping us, this is the context of Psalm 46. In fact, some people believe that the backdrop of Psalm 46 is the time when the Assyrians were coming and invading the area of Israel, and the Assyrians were a vicious, cruel, and barbaric people. And as a result of that, whenever you knew the Assyrians were heading towards your territory, your heart would be gripped with fear. I mean, these people would decapitate people, and they would literally stack their skulls outside of the city gate when they would conquer a territory uh, to basically just convey to anyone else who would pass by, uh, if you don't submit to us when we come to your town, uh, that will be the monument outside of your city gate. It will be the skulls of your wives and your sons and your daughters. I mean, these people would just do very vicious, cruel, and barbaric things. 
So uh, they were a tremendous threat when they were a world-dominating power, Syria was. And at one point, remember, they came and they were encroaching upon the nation of Israel. And fear, the Bible tells us, Isaiah's prophecy and Second Kings as well, that the hearts of the people were gripped with tremendous fear in Israel when they knew the Assyrians were on their doorstep. And they were terrified as they surrounded the city. And it seems that this could have been the context of the psalm when this was written to kind of help encourage their hearts. It tells us that this psalm begins by saying, God is our refuge and our strength and a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. There is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. And notice God is in the midst of her. It seems referring to the city, Jerusalem, excuse me, God's in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. That is, God would be her stabilizing influence despite the threat. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He, that's God, uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. And the God of Jacob is our refuge, the psalmist says, Selah, or think about that. Ponder this. Think this through. Now, you can tell times are bad. Verse 2 gives a little bit of what's being described there. Uh, he describes a time, uh, he says, even though, and the idea here is, is if things get worse than they already are, even though, even if it gets worse, and then he kind of describes the worst case scenario. He says, even if the earth, now, the earth we use the picture as a pretty stable thing, right? <laughs> and we've been living on this thing for a while. And, and we would picture the earth to be pretty stable. But he says, even if, not just your job is removed, or your house is removed, or your nation is destroyed. He says, even if the earth, <laughs> the very ball of dirt that's been your stability, your whole breathing life as a human, is even if the earth was removed. If the whole earth was shaken, he says, even though, he says, if mountains could be carried into the midst of the sea. So, again, imagine that a, a huge mountain that, you know, the, the, the Rockies, the Himalayas, I mean, mountain ranges. Imagine an entire mountain being uprooted and cast into the sea. Well, if you take a mountain and you cast it into the sea, that's not bad enough. What's the end result of a mountain being cast into the sea? A tsunami. That's much worse, right? So you're, the idea is the psalmist here is trying to paint worst case scenarios. Even if the earth is removed, if a mountain gets cast into the sea and this major tsunami is heading towards you, just ready to destroy everything in your life, though its waters roar and be troubled and the mountains shake with swelling. So again, he's just picturing here when the whole world is falling apart. When everything in your world is crumbling and falling apart, when there are just massive waves of storms that are coming upon you, and look, you, you can't outrun a tsunami wave, right? You can't stop a tsunami. There's nothing that you can do. It is so overwhelming, the crisis, the situation, the danger, the threat of it, 
That's bad stuff, worst case scenario. And sometimes we find ourselves facing stuff like that in our own ways. He's painting pictures here poetically, but sometimes we can relate to that. We feel like we're in a very difficult storm. We find ourselves maybe in the midst of a a major crisis in our life, right? Maybe it's a financial crisis. Maybe it's a, a family crisis or a marital crisis or some crisis that's happened with our health or maybe with our job, or, I mean, there's so many different ways this is going to fold. Sometimes it's multiple things compounding on top of one another. And we find ourselves just overwhelmed with fear. He says, in the midst of those things, what do we do? He says, we, we remember this reality, verse 1. He says that God is our refuge. Again, here's this massive tsunami. There is nothing I can do to preserve myself, God. There's nothing I can do to stop this or protect myself. And God says, I'll be your refuge. I can be your refuge. And what's a refuge? A refuge is a place of safety, right? A refuge is a place of shelter. The the, the language there describes being able to go somewhere that is unable to be touched by the harmful effects of circumstances. So whether it's a high precipice, right, or being able to get to a spot where it's a refuge. Things are calm and safe and you can be preserved and protected there. And and he says, this is what God, God literally can become our refuge because God's bigger than all those things, right? Even the most difficult, dangerous, scary things that overwhelm us, they're nothing to God, right? God created the heavens and the earth. So even the biggest tsunami or the most dangerous storm or the greatest crisis, which is terrifying to us and would just destroy us from a human perspective, it's absolutely nothing to God because God's above all those things, right? Jesus would walk into the midst of storms and the disciples would be freaked out and he would just speak to the storm and it would just stop. He'd just say, peace, be still. And everything would just go calm because even creation obeys him. So the Bible reminds us, look, in the midst of those times, we have to remember that God is our refuge. How are we going to get through this? How are we going to be preserved? Because God is our refuge. I don't know if I have the strength to handle this. I'm so tired. I'm so worn out. I'm so weak and weary. And I just don't have the strength to face this crisis. Well, that's okay, because look what else he says. Not only is God our safety, but he says God also is our strength. So when you have no strength, God will become your strength. You don't have to muster up your own strength. And sometimes, you know, I've been in situations, you've been in situations, right, where you just literally are at that spot where you're like, I just do not have the strength to do this. I just, I, I can't even find the strength. I can't just, you know, dig deep. That's what your sports coach, right? Dig deeper. I'm just digging myself in a deeper ditch is all I'm doing. <laughs> There's nothing. I've dug deeper. I flipped over the leaf. It's worse on the other side. Can't even turn over a new leaf. But the good news is, is that the Bible says, Isaiah 40, it tells us that God gives power to the weak. And listen, it says to those who have no might, he gives strength. Sometimes we miss God's strength because we try to be so strong. And God says, I'm your refuge. I'm your strength. And I'm a very present help in time of trouble. Notice a very present help. God is with us. He's available to help us. When trouble comes, and that's what the Psalm's describing, troublesome times, God is with us. God's available to us. He says, I'm with you, I'm present. So it means when we go through troublesome times, there's one thing that we can absolutely count on. Are you in trouble? Are you going through trouble? 
God's with you. Because it says, in troublesome times, God says, I'm a very present help. I'm there. So there's almost something as if God is magnetically drawn closer when you go through trouble. When you go through trouble and hardship, God's presence is more there. He's more available to help and to assist. He's a very present help in our troublesome times. So because of those things that God is our refuge and our strength, and because he's a very present help in trouble, the psalm says, therefore, we will not fear. We're not going to be gripped by fear. We're not going to let ourselves become paralyzed with anxiety or just completely just, you know, lose our mind in fear and worry because he says, because God is our refuge and our strength and because he's a very present help in trouble, we will not fear even if the earth is removed. We're not going to let ourselves be governed by fear. It may be scary, but we're not going to let ourselves be overcome with the feelings and emotions of fear. And then he describes how God supplies peace in the midst of things. Because verse four, he says, there is a river, notice, whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the most high. So again, he describes this river that brings gladness and peace in the midst of very troublesome times. Now, if this is written in the context of when the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem, if you remember what Hezekiah did during that time is he actually very creatively built a tunnel underground to bring in a fresh source of water while they were being besieged as a city. And so literally there was this unseen underground stream of fresh water that was being brought into the city, which made people very glad in the city of God, as their enemy was surrounding them and they were feeling very overwhelmed and terrified, there was this stream coming in, making the people glad. And, you know, for you and I, the Bible gives us the same impression in a spiritual way. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel, Jesus describes as well the ministry of the Holy Spirit like rivers of living water. And there is this unseen stream, this unseen river of God, the river of his spirit that can flow into our lives, that even in troublesome times, God can give you a sense of peace and gladness. And even though you are in a hard time, there is a river who can come into your life, the river of the Spirit, who can begin to minister to you. And notice where it comes from. It comes from the tabernacle, the holy place of the Most High. That is just, it comes from the being in God's house and the presence of God's Spirit ministry being at work in our life. He says, verse five, God is in the midst of her, talking no doubt about that city, she shall not be moved. So notice, it was God's presence that brought stability to the city of Jerusalem. Should they have been destroyed like every other nation? Absolutely, but they were not destroyed. Why, verse five? Because though the nations raged and the kingdoms were moved, because God helped her, that is Jerusalem, at the break of dawn. And perhaps that is a description there of exactly what took place. We know historically, because remember, when the Assyrians surrounded the city, it says that one night, one angel of the Lord was sent out by God, one angel, and destroyed and killed 185,000 Assyrians. The next morning they went out, they looked over the wall, and 185,000 Assyrians were dead. Because in one night, God changed everything. And when it says that that angel went out and accomplished this, it doesn't say it was Michael, the archangel, doesn't say it was Gabriel, doesn't say it was, it just says an angel. Alex, Bob, George, just one angel, just a generic angel. One angel went out 
And this massive, huge, troublesome problem of all these Assyrians was dealt with in one night. God changed everything. And God has the power to do that. And so God intervened. This is the idea. God shall help her. The next morning, they got up at dawn, and everything was different. God can fix a problem overnight if he wants to. He can. He truly, truly can. You know, this verse here, verse 5, was actually one of the very promises that God gave to us regarding our, our daughter, Carly, who's here this evening. We were having all kinds of, you know, medical issues when Trish was pregnant with her, and ultimately, this was one of the very promises that God gave to us. I mean, they gave us warnings and concerns of all these different ways, things that were going to happen when she was born. There was all these, you know, few error things that type happen, and they were telling us she might be born, and we may have to, as soon as she's born, you know, pump out all of her blood and reprocess all of her. And I mean, they were telling us everything under the sun. Everything under the sun. She may be born with brain damage and this and that, and, and ultimately the Lord gave us this promise, God is in the midst of her. And God shall help her just at the break of dawn. And when she was born at the break of dawn, she was fine. She's a little crazy, but she's, she's fine. Crazy in a good way. But God helped her and, 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 and took care of the situation. And, and it was a wonderful promise to be able to know that, again, it was God's presence that brought stability. God can intervene. God can help whatever you're you're dealing with. And I think that's why the psalmist perhaps says here, the Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of hosts is the Lord of the hosts, the angelic host. The God of the angels of all the hosts of heaven is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, he says, verse eight, behold, the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He says, come. Consider, behold, he says, ponder the works of the Lord. You know, whenever we find ourselves being doubtful, that's important to do. Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I just don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know how this is going to work out. He says, ponder the works of the Lord. Look throughout the scripture. Read your Bible. Look how, how God performed works. When the walls of Jericho looked impossible, what did God, God took care of? God took down the walls of Jericho. When the children of Israel were trying to get out of Egypt and the Egyptians were breathing down their neck and there were barriers on both sides and there was the Red Sea in front of them, what did God do? God parted the sea. God made a way where there had never been a way before. And God led them through. And again, we just consider all these wonderful works of the Lord. When they were out in the wilderness, how are we going to eat? How are we drink? God was bringing water from rocks. Oh, we're never going to make it. We only have a little bit of oil left in the jar. God said, that's fine. Just keep pouring it from jar to jar. And God kept multiplying the oil again and again and again and again. And again, as, as we read the works of the Lord, it strengthens our faith because then we know, okay, if God worked like that, maybe God can work in my situation. And this is why I think the psalmist tells us here, consider, behold, the works of the Lord. He says, he's a God, verse nine, notice, who makes wars to cease. This is the power of the God we serve. He can make a war cease. Oh, this war has been going on forever and ever, whether it's a national war, whether it's a relational war. And sometimes relational conflicts become like that, don't they? Relational battles sometimes become entire wars, literally years long, years long wars. Families get into just total wars. It's worse than some of what goes on on a military level. He can make wars to cease. He can break the bow and cut the spear in two. 
He burns the chariot with fire. What's the exhortation? This is the exhortation to those of us who find ourselves fearful of a crisis or fighting a battle that just seems impossible for us. He says, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. You notice God speaking in the first person now? This is, this is the voice of God. God directly interjects. It's almost as if he overrides the psalmist and he says, oh, pardon me, bud, give me the pen a minute. I want to say this directly firsthand. I have something firsthand that I want to say to someone who's facing a hardship, a crisis, a difficulty, who's dealing with fear. I want them to know that this is my heart for them. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then the psalmist again says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. So what is God's exhortation to us in the midst of these kind of things? God's exhortation is be still. The Hebrew term literally means to desist. Or we might say, stand down. The idea is hands off, stop resisting arrest here. The guy's saying stop. Stand down, cease and desist, cut it out, take your hands off, stop trying to make it happen. Stop trying to fix it, stop trying to solve it, stop trying to force it. God says, just be still. Submit. (laughs) That's the idea there. And that's hard for us, right? Because as human beings, whether it's just our personality, trying to fix things, it feels responsible, right? I mean, that's just our natural, there's a problem, you try and fix it. And so part of that is just, you know, we're trying to be responsible. We're trying to think through things, trying to be pragmatic. And I'm not saying we should be irresponsible, nor is God, I believe. But then sometimes, too, it's just our emotions or our fears. If I don't do something or our impatience, this is taking too long. I need to speed up the process. And so we start trying to wrestle and struggle and wrestle and struggle. And and that just creates more worry and angst. and, And God just says, stop. Just cease, stand down, be still, just sit still, let go. And and what does he say? Know that I'm God. And it's almost as if I know sometimes the Lord says to me, until you just sit still, you're never going to know that I'm God. (laughs) You're never going to get to see the works of God. And sometimes we can hinder the process even. And so God says, just be still, just be still. Know that I'm God. The idea is rest, God says, and rely. Rest in me and rely that I'm God. And he says, and you watch, he says, verse verse 10, two times, I will be exalted. You be still. You just know that I'm God and watch how I'll exalt myself in the midst of working in a situation. What a wonderful thing that God offers to us as counsel in those times. Let's stand again.